Good morning. Uh, my name's Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, so glad that you've gathered with us, church. Good morning. So thankful to open up God's Word, deliver it to you. And uh, kids, I know, Ezra, you're so excited to go. Kids, let me pray for you. Kids, before you go, I just want you to know you're loved, you're seen. This is a place for you. We are so glad. This is not just like your parents' place that you just sort of have to run along with. We're glad that you're with us too. So let me pray for you before you go. God, we pray for these kids as they get ready to go and hear from your word. Lord, pray they have a good time. But most of all, God, I pray that they would hear about Christ and their need for him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, off you go, kids. And they leave. Thank you for those that are discipling those children. Such an important part, right? This is the work, right? We Restoration Church, our mission statement is to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. So we understand that's what the work of the church is, is to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. So as the kids go, that's all they're doing, is uh, we're going to teach them how to follow Jesus. You heard the passage this morning that we'll be looking at, but let me begin with some sobering words. And what has often been referred to as some of the most haunting passages in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, there in that passage, Jesus documents some people where on the last day or their death, they face Christ. They claim to have done mighty deeds, cast out demons, and prophesy in his name. And Jesus responds to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. One such person, maybe like that, was a man that lived in the 19th century in London, England. His name was James Melbourne. Uh, he was under the ministry of Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was on the ministry of the famed pastor Charles Spurgeon. Uh, James Melbourne thought himself to be a Christian. He then applied for membership to the church, took an interview, as is customary of many churches, to join the church. The elder had the interview about this person trying to ascertain his... Uh, whether or not he's been converted. And after that interview, the elder wrote this in reference to James Melbourne's faith. Quote, The good man wishes to join the church because his wife has applied for membership. He has frequently heard Mr. Spurgeon and prefers his preaching to any he have ever heard. I do not think, though, he has the faintest idea of the gospel. I suppose he is honest, sober, and industrious, and willing to join a church or do anything else which is reputable and respectable. He reads parts of the Bible sometimes and thinks it all very good, but knows no preference. Precepts seem to interest him more than promises. Unquote. Friends, I wonder how many James Melbournes are members of, of churches today. Or... Maybe not members, but still fancy themselves to be in Christ, and yet Christ doesn't know them. And they stand to have a very sobering day when they meet Him. Reputable, respectable, willing to join a church, have been maybe baptized, fancy themselves as Christians, and yet don't have the faintest idea about the gospel and how it works and what it does. More interested in precepts than they are promises. Well, friends, it has been my prayer this week that this sermon might awaken maybe a few James Melbournes in our midst here this morning. Maybe that's you. This morning, we will see what Christianity actually is. 
That is, we will see the gospel and how someone is actually converted by that gospel and then what it leads to so as to bear witness to its conversion. And in the end, to give assurance, that's what will land, to those that are actually in Christ. We're again in our second week of our study of 1 Thessalonians. Next week, we'll take one week break. Our brother Justin Perry from our sister church in Tampa will come preach from us from, to us from Zephaniah 3. But we're in our second week here in 1 Thessalonians. As you heard read, this is a letter written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, a little missionary team that you heard from Acts 17. They go into Thessalonica. They preach the gospel. Some people respond amidst a bunch of affliction and persecution. They then form this church. And this is the letter that we read where in a few months, just a few months later, Paul writes this letter back to this little baby church. Maybe three or four months, what you heard from Acts 17. Only just a few months have passed when he's writing this letter back to this church. Timothy goes back there. He says the church seems to be doing well. Paul again writes this letter. And he testifies to them, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that they, the church, is they are children of light. And we see in that church how through affliction the gospel births churches for eternal glory. Last week we saw how Paul referred to them as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in the triune God of love. Now we see this by the evidence. Look in verse 3 of their faith, their works of faith, their labors of love, and their steadfast hope. He's recounting uh, the evidence of their salvation. That continues in verses 4 to 10. That's what we're going to look at this morning. He's continuing to recount the evidence that they are true church, that they are manifesting the gospel. Five questions this morning that we'll answer. Here's the first. Can we even know if someone has been lovingly converted? Can we even know who God has lovingly chosen to convert? Is that even possible for us to be aware of? Immanuel Kant, the famed 18th century philosopher, taught an idea that is now popularly believed in our own context. He taught, Kant did, he said, quote, the the wish to talk to God is absurd. We cannot talk to one we cannot comprehend. And we cannot comprehend God, unquote. That's Immanuel Kant. And so the obvious implication of this that I think now has sort of seeped into our culture is that if we cannot comprehend God, we most certainly cannot know if someone is saved, forgiven, reconciled to God. In other words, the skeptic might say, well, to be human is to err. We are finite individuals that can hardly know the difference between our left and our right. So how can we be so arrogant as to know for certain that someone is saved? My goodness, we live in a society now. Right? We're now questioning if we can even know the gender of a child. How can we know if someone is saved? And so is it possible to know if someone is converted? And the clear and unequivocal answer from the Apostle Paul is yes. You can know. If you have been chosen by God in love. You can know. And again, by converted, I'm using this word converted this morning. It means to be born again, to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Can you know? Yes, is Paul's answer. Take a look at verse 4. It's so clear. After documenting the truth about them and their witness, Paul says, For or because we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I don't know how it gets any more clear than that. There's other verses in the Bible that reference the same thing. We know 
that he has chosen. So friends, God is not silent. He has spoken to us in those two great books. He's spoken to us in the book of creation, wherein he manifests his power, his might, his divinity. And he has spoken to us through his word, so as to ascertain who he is, what he demands, and how it is we might know him. And in God is also, not only is he not silent, he's not stingy. He's not holding out on us. He's not a miserly old man that has given us a few pennies and left it up to us to kind of figure out how to create our own wealth so that maybe, maybe we might get it. He's not stingy. He wants us to know. And thirdly, God is not manipulative. Right? He's not kind of keeping us at arm's reach, not wanting to give us too much assurance, only twisting our arms to kind of treat us like circus animals to kind of you know do some more work so as to perform for him. No. God is not like that. God has spoken. He has made clear what conversion is, how it happens, and the evidence of those that have experienced it. That's why Paul can say confidently that we know that you have been chosen. And I should hasten to add secondarily to that, as we see in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and these other places throughout the book of Acts, all these opportunities when the local church, God has ordained the local church to, as Jesus says, to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to bind and loose on earth as they understand it to be in heaven. It's the work of the church to bring in people in through membership to say, yeah, we understand the gospel and it looks like you are too. Come on in. So not only has God made it known to us through his word, but also he's given local churches so as to mark off Christians to give them that assurance. And so, yes, you can know if you have been converted. Second question. Well, how does it begin? How does conversion begin and end in a way? How does it get going? Sort of like, a, like, a, like going to a car, putting a key in the key slot and turning over the engine begins the process to get you where you want to go. How does conversion begin? What's needed to make it happen? We'll look at verse 4 and verse 5 again. He says, verse 4, we know that you are loved by God, chosen by God. God does the choosing. He knows that's happened. Verse 5, because, here comes our answer. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So conversion, in other words, as he says there, begins with the proclamation of the true gospel. So it begins. Not a false gospel, the real gospel, the true one. Uh, right? The, Paul talks about other kind of distorted gospels that are no gospels at all in places like the book of Galatians. But it starts with the true gospel. Paul came to Galatia. He came to Thessalonica, as we saw. And he preached, right, as you heard read from Acts 17, the true gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, dead, and resurrection. The true gospel. He preaches that. And conversion begins with words. Or better yet, conversion begins with news. So if you've heard this notion of preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, that's ridiculous, right? It's words. The gospel is news. It's news about what Christ has done for sinners. How God is holy and righteous, perfectly righteous, transcendent, set apart from creation, perfect. And he creates mankind in his own image so that we might have the capacity to know him and be in relation to him. And then that we, right, Adam first and then all of us have sinned against him. We have not been righteous. We have rebelled against his commands. We have served ourselves, other gods, other idols, as we'll consider. 
And so God then, because of our sin, has separated us from himself, from a holy God. And therefore we deserve, right, to be under God's judgment. And God would have been just to leave it there. And yet he and his love sent his only son, fully God and fully man, so as to reconcile man to God. Through his faithful life, through his atoning death on the cross, through his resurrection three days later, and his ascension, he, for those that repent and believe upon him, they, he now uh, prays for their salvation to the Father, representing their righteousness in heaven. And those sinners that respond in that way get God. This is the gospel. But it doesn't stop with those words. As Paul says there, if you look again, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so conversion is not just intellectually, don't don't miss this, conversion is not just intellectually affirming the reality, the truths of the gospel. Remember, the demons know that. The demons believe that. They know the truth of the gospel, but they are not saved. It's not just intellectual assent. It's hearing that gospel. And secondly, it then begins by the power of the Holy Spirit descending upon the person's soul so as to bring about full full conviction. Conversion is not making someone nicer, although that might happen. I would hope that would happen. Conversion is not making someone maybe a little bit more sincere. Again, though I hope that would happen. Conversion is not even necessarily making someone more moral, though I trust, again, that would happen. As we see in James Melbourne and the people that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7, you can be nice and sincere and even believe intellectually in the truths of the gospel and not be saved. You need to hear the true gospel and the Holy Spirit rides on the winds of that message to open the blinded eyes of the sinner so as to behold the glory of Christ. And in that sight, there is full conviction wherein the Spirit applies the truths of the gospel to the sinner. In other words, as Paul says, we are chosen by God. And God, working through the proclamation of the true gospel, not the distorted one, descends into the soul wherein a person's blinded eyes, right? They're blinded. They cannot see. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 makes it clear. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the Spirit so descends through the proclamation of that gospel to see. And then they behold the wonders of God as the Spirit gives them that sight and applies the truths of the gospel to the believer. And so people can change habits to stop being an alcoholic alcoholic, and they become sober. That can happen, right? People can change habits to stop being abusive and learn to be gentle. People can change religions even by stopping attending a church and maybe attending a Buddhist temple, taking up their religiosity. Christianity is saying something very different. Very different. No other message like it in the world. You've heard this claim, all the religions are the same. That's true of every other religion except Christianity. Christianity is saying something that when the gospel goes forth, it is akin to someone showing up at a graveyard, preaching the gospel, and people rise up. That's the gospel. Whereas every other religion is sort of tapping into some sort of goodness within you, wherein you can kind of, if you work hard enough, you can maybe get saved. That's not Christianity. Christianity is saying we're dead. God awakens us. 
Christianity is saying, as we considered just a couple weeks ago from Psalm 14, that there are none who seek God, no, not one. We are blind to the truth. Look down there at verse 9. We are all serving idols. No kind of good intentions, guys. No kind of good habits. No kind of personal achievements. No kind of really kind of self-willed religiosity can bring about conversion. It's all, as we've been singing this morning, it's all about grace. The unmerited favor of God. It's all done through the news of the gospel as the gospel fruit is applied by the grace of God and the power of God to the person. They are born again. Reborn. God does the saving. Like a dead car cannot start itself, it needs to be rescued from something outside of itself. So do we need to be rescued from outside of ourselves because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says. Jesus, in speaking to that well-known, very religious teacher, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and, and Nicodemus, a teacher, he would have known the Bible really well, kind of living, trying to write, he was a Pharisee. He says back, what do you want me to crawl back in my mom's womb? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Right, and Jesus says in response, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water, cleansing, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God's got to bring about the conversion because we're dead and blinded. And rebellious by nature. And all of that begins with the proclamation, the testimony of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascended Christ, and soon return of Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, it descends upon the soul and regenerates the Spirit to give eyes and sight and power to be counted righteous and work it out. This is what Paul, this is why, by the way, Paul says in in, in verse 3, look there in verse 3, this is why Paul thanks God, not them, for the church's salvation. Conversion, salvation, is by God's grace working through the gospel, the power of the Spirit, not any kind or any amount of human effort of any sort. That's how conversion begins and ultimately ends. That leads then to the third question that surely, maybe my now you're asking. Well, do we not have any, respo- any response? Do we not have any part We know, for instance, from Ephesians 1, as we considered last week, that God has chosen a people from before the foundation of the world to set his love upon, to make blameless. We see in this passage, verse 4, that God chooses to so love us by converting us through the gospel as the Spirit powerfully moves in. But does that just mean we're a bunch of robots? Do we have nothing at all to do? Oh, the answer, friend, is yes, we do have something to do. Not to save ourselves. That's not possible, as we've already discussed. We do have a response. We do have a way to respond to full conviction of conversion. This begins, guys, to answer the question of the evidence of salvation. How can we be sure we're converted? Well, by responding to the gospel in full conviction in three very distinct ways that you can see right here in our passage. Slide down to verses 9 and 10, where Paul summarizes the church in Thessalonica's conversion. Remember, I just want to say, I said it last week, I want to say it again. This is to a local church. All the U's here are in the plural form. Referencing other peoples from around the region, Paul goes on to say in verse 9, 
He's referencing these other people that heard about their conversion. He says, quote, They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Who is it? Jesus who delivers us. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three things there in that passage we see as to how the true Christian that is experiencing uh, conversion responds. Three things. One, you turn to God as servants. Two, you turn from idols. And three, you wait for the resurrected and ascended Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath wrath to come. So through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit powerfully moves to open the eyes of the dead and blind people, wherein, sort of like Pinocchio, they begin to live and move and have their being by the power of God. They then, as evidenced by that, the fact that their eyes have been opened, they then do those three things. They turn to God as servants from idols and wait on Jesus' return. Now, the language, guys, of turning to God and from idols is the language of repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. As it relates to repentance, repentance, friends, is not doing penance, as the Roman Catholic Church wrongly teaches. Repentance is a heart position that results in hand actions. It's a turning away from idols. There's nothing you can do, as we saw, to save ourselves. Jesus speaks of repentance in one of his sermons in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so how is it you know that the Holy Spirit has powerfully moved and caused you to be born again, caused you to be so that you would know that you're chosen in love? How is it you can be sure of that? How can you be sure that you have full conviction? Well, you are willing to not just repent, but be repenting and turning away from idols and to the living God. Repentance demands, that is, some level of sorrow, some level of contrition for the ways in which you've loved other things more than God. That's what idolatry is, just loving things more than God. The first commandment, right? Have no other gods before me. Idolatry is just loving something more than God. Could be like another contracted God, could be something like money. Sex. Repentance is, is seeing sorrow, contrition for that. For how we've worshipped the foolishness of idols instead of the glory of Christ. In our context, I believe the chief idol is not institutionalized religions as such. More than it is the idol of our land is me. Greed, adultery, which is... All sex outside of heterosexual marriage, any kind of marriage, it's all sex outside of marriage. It's pursuit of fame or power, pursuit of comfort, of security as primary. The pursuit of autonomy where no one gets to dictate what I think is good, right, or true and whatever it else is I want to do. All of those guys are forms of idolatry because they seek to serve the self over the Savior. I get to be Lord. Sort of like the garden, right? Genesis 3. They want to be like God. And repentance is seeing not only the foolishness of these things, but the penalty of these things before a holy God that deserves all of our praise and worship. We turn from God, sorry, we turn to God from idols. We repent of those sins. 
And faith is that second element. Faith is that turning to God. Repentance is turning, here's the idol. It's turning away from the idol to the one true and living God. By the way, there's only two directions. There's not sort of here or here or here. It's there or there. From idols to God. Faith is turning to God in response to the gospel. Uh, The other side of that same coin where we show we've been reborn. Faith, again, is not merely intellectual agreement, though it is that. It's more than that. Faith is trusting and treasuring Christ. You're repenting from idolatry and you have full conversion to now have faith, to trust in God as God, to have Christ as your supreme treasure. As evidence, as Paul says in verse 9, as seeing yourselves as a servant of God. Faith, in other words, is likened to falling off of a cliff and you having no hope but death before you. And yet, by some gracious act of mercy, someone reaches down as you're falling and lifts you a hand wherein you grab that hand. Faith is trusting in the hand to pull you up and save you. It is not your hand that saves you. It is not your faith as such that saves you. It is your trust in the hand. It is trust in the mercy of the person that pulls you up and treasuring that person. It's my trusting and treasuring Christ to save me, not myself. Again, this is why the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone. No works, all Christ. All Him. So we turn from idols in repentance and to Christ in faith to trust and treasure Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So in glad-hearted trust, we are no longer idol worshipers. We are no longer captains of our own fate. We, we see our deadness and our rebelliousness, and we know that we deserve God's anger. And by the power of the Spirit working through the proclamation of the true gospel, we see the glory of Christ's mercy on the cross to pay for our sins. We see and savor His resurrection, which shows that the payment has cleared. And in the sight of Jesus' glory, His resurrected glory, we turn to Him in glad-hearted faith, repenting of our idolatry for the ways in which we've made Christ our servant instead of our Lord. And we delight in His supremacy. We are so happy that He is our King. We repent and believe in Him as Lord and Savior of all. And then thirdly, the third way we respond, as we see in this passage, is as it says there in verse 10, we wait for our delight. We wait for God's Son to come from heaven. Jesus, verse 10, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, just after Jesus told Nicodemus that we must be born again by the Spirit, that's the context of that well-known verse of John 3, 16 and 17, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, whoever it is that's believing, whoever it is believes in Him should not perish have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, Jesus is saying that He came the first time not to condemn. The first time He came not to condemn, but to save, to redeem the chosen. He came that first time to redeem them, to save those that are turning away from idols in repentance, to turn to Christ in glad-hearted faith. But Jesus makes clear that while he will come again a second time, at this time he will come come not to save but to condemn. 
In other words, he will come to save in the final sense. He'll come to rescue, to realize those of whom he's already paid for. But that second time, he will bring about condemnation for those that are not believing, the ones that he hasn't actually chosen. That's the conclusion of Jesus' words. The kind of final conversation of the John 3.16 passage is verse 36, wherein Jesus says, to summarize his own little interaction with, uh, with Nicodemus, Jesus says, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Which is exactly what Paul's saying in the wrath to come. Referencing his own return in Matthew 25.41, Jesus says of the unbelieving, that is those that have, uh, haven't truly turned to Christ, Jesus says of them, Referencing himself, then he, the son of man, he's talking about, then he will say to those on his left at his return, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, do not believe those who try to tell you that hell is not real. That is not a loving thing. It sounds loving, but it's not. Because hell, if hell is not real, then God is not just. Which means He can't be loving. It serves God's love and His justice to have people pay for what they wanted. Anything other than Him. But Paul, though, says of the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica, he says of the church in Thessalonica, you don't have to fear that return. You don't have to be scared at it. He says, we wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of co- to come. So to be converted is not only to repent of sin and have faith in Christ and what he has done, but it's also in waiting, trusting in what Christ will do when he returns to make all things new. This is why, by the way, Christians talk and sing about heaven so much. Is because we know we're still waiting for that final salvation. We know that God will eventually make all things new. And we do not fear that day because our condemnation was paid for in Christ. That's what we celebrate in this Lord's Supper and that's what we look forward to in this Lord's Supper. A world made right, justice served, and eternal joy with no more tears. Conversion, friends, is not only repenting of sin and gladly believing what Christ has done with it on the cross. Conversion is waiting on what Christ will do. When sin, death, and injustices and idolatry will be put away and dealt with forever. Where we will uh, then see the one of whom we love and be with him forever. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the day that we wait for as Christians. That's how we know. That's what we do in conversion. This is what conversion is. It begins with the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction is brought upon that person. That person then, having had that happen to them, they then repent of serving idols. They then trust in the sufficient work of Christ, trusting and treasuring it. Wait for Jesus' return. But is that all? Is that the only confidence that we have of our conversion? Just what we did when we trusted Jesus? That first time. Is that the only evidence? The answer is no. There's more. Right here in this passage. Fourthly, what's the evidence of conversion? What's the evidence of conversion? That too again is here in verses 4 to 10. Jesus says that they will, that we will know, we will not know his disciples by their mere confession. 
We can presume that that would have been the case, right? That much could be assumed. We already knew like they would confess him. They will know you're my disciples. Just before uh, that haunting passage where Jesus says there's going to be these people that die or he returns and he says, I never knew you, though you did all this stuff in my name. Just before that passage, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17, quote, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Notice there's only two kinds. Good, bad fruit. He goes on in verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You'll know who's their Lord and Master based off of the fruit of their life. What he's saying. And one of those fruits that Jesus gives so clearly in John 13, 35 is, by this all people will know you are my disciples. What is it? If you have love for one another, by the way you do this, that's how we can see that you've been converted. There's this external evidence. So too many people, maybe like James Melbourne, make their claim as Christian because of maybe what they once did. I grew up in a context where a lot of people did that. How do you know you're saved? Well, when I was eight, I walked an aisle. How do you know you're saved? Well, when I was 10, I I prayed a prayer. Trust, maybe that's true. But do you believe him today? Are you manifesting that for today? Because if, in fact, you have been converted, if you have been born again, if you are a new creation, as Jesus says, then you act as though these things are true. In other words, you've got fruit that's coming out, right? Healthy, good fruit of the gospel. You bear fruit, as it says, in keeping with repentance. You're alive, in other words. Mere confession, friend, does not assure us that you're a Christian. Again, the demons believe in shudder. The confession bears fruit of its being alive in Christ. As James says, we not only believe the words of God, we also ought to be what? Doers of the word. And right here is where many, I think, are deceived. They may believe everything I've said up until this point. The question is, is there fruit of being reborn? For Paul, the Thessalonians have evidence they're being chosen and loved by God. Holy Spirit power that brings full conviction conviction manifests itself in three ways. You can see it in verse 6 to 8. Three ways he lists there. One, you see it there? They're imitators of the Lord and His people. Two, you can see it there? There's joy of the Holy Spirit. And three, verse 8, they sound forth the gospel to the nations. There's three evidences, external evidences, that they've been reborn. So to be in Christ necessarily means that you are then to display Christ to the world. Many of you may not even know, right? The word Christian means little Christ. It was actually a pejorative term originally. They're making fun of people. Ah, They're acting just like Jesus. Now, to be clear, if you're not a Christian, you're going, well, Nathan, I know a few Christians, and they don't really act like Christians all the time. Yes, it's true. As you heard, Joey, this morning, confessing our sin, just that we did this past week. We're not the one that's perfect. We're not the one that saves us. Remember, Jesus is the one that does that and is doing that. So for while we are in Christ positionally, we are still learning how to grow up into what the Spirit has so deposited in us. In other words, my kids, when they were born, are still kids, and they're still learning how to be a knight. Nathan Knight, that's my last name is Knight. They're still learning how to be an adult. Right? They're still a kid. They're still, their last name's still Knight, but they're there. They're positionally in Knightness, but they're still learning how to be a Knight. 
So it is with Christians. We're in Christ, but we're still learning how to grow up into Him. And we would know we're converted by the fact that we're doing that. Christians are learning to live and love as Christ lived and loved, to imitate the Lord and His people. I remember being made fun of one time because years ago, I was thinking about this in this passage, somebody's making fun of me because I was really following this other godly man that was a mentor of mine. They kind of made fun of me, and I was very defensive. Now, after having studied this passage, I've been like, yeah, I am following that guy because he's a good godly man. It's a good thing. So we hate the things that God hates. We love the things that God loves. That word, look at verse 6. You see that word, imitate? That word is the same word. We get our word type. Same exact word. Christians are to be types of Christ, imitators. It can be trite, but kids, don't be, you know, adults, don't be afraid to wear it. You know what? It's actually not such a bad thing to have those bracelets. What would Jesus do? Right? That's what we're trying to do. Not only because we have to, not only because we ought to want to, but because we've been reborn to. We literally have been born to do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, heaven has begun to break into churches' lives. We believe Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Therefore, our lives individually and corporately, together as a church, are striving to be a type of Christ, which illustrates the way and the truth and the life. And when we get it wrong, and we do get it wrong, as you heard us confess this morning, we turn from those idols. We say what we did was wrong there. We go to God and ask forgiveness. If we sin against somebody, we tell somebody what we did. And the God sanctifies us, cleanses us up. And in our life together, as we do this work and growing up into Christ who is our head, we are a kind of the church, is a kind of preview of the coming attraction of heaven. That's what the church life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this preview. Membership is sort of... Marking out, binding and loosing on earth as it is in heaven, trying to make clear where the kingdom is as it relates to who's in it. And in their life together, it's a kind of preview as they try to picture Christ out in, come of the, out in front of Jesus' return. Jesus even said in the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples. And then he, what does he say to him? Baptize them in the name, single name, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons. Baptizing the name, teaching them to what? To obey all of I that I have commanded you. So we don't conform to the patterns of the world, but we conform to the patterns of the world to come. Authentic Christianity, true conversion, imitates Christ and the people of Christ by glad-hearted obedience to our beloved Master and Savior. Secondly, we do this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. He says it met them with the joy of the Spirit. Now, joy, guys, is deeper than happiness. Joy is something that transcends circumstances. Thus Paul's words there to say that they receive the word, listen, in much affliction. That's a theme throughout Thessalonica. You heard from Acts 17, all kinds of affliction. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the joy of the Holy Spirit is that joyful sight that I was talking about before of the glory of Christ. Listen to Jesus. Sometimes people say, Nathan, is your church spirit-filled? And I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? And my answer is Jesus' answer. Here's what the Spirit does. John 16, 13 to 14. I could point you to other ones. This one's so clear. Jesus references the work of the Spirit. Here's what he says of it. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sins, the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, He, it's a He, it's not an it, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. This is key. He will glorify me. For, because, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's the work of the Spirit. How do you know you're a Spirit-led church? Well, are you treasuring Christ? If you are, you're a Spirit-led church. That's what he said. He, the Spirit's work, is to glorify Christ. Spirit, sometimes called the shy one of the triune, God, he's like, don't, don't look at me, look at him. You see how awesome he is. And he will declare what is mine to you. So the joy of the Holy Spirit is glorying in Christ and all that Christ is for us. Therefore, the evidence of true conversion is when a person born again by the power of the Spirit begins to have the joy of Christ and all the truths of Christ. Even, as it says in Thessalonians, even in afflictions. So remember James Melbourne again. The elder said that he seemed to enjoy precepts and not promises. See, the truly converted not only understands the doctrines of propitiation and justification and adoption and glorification. All those are Bible words, by the way. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just quoting the Bible. The Christian not only understands what those things mean, but the Christian, the truly converted, those precepts are promises that they revel in. We love these truths. They're our lives. More than that, they point to us our Savior, Jesus. And so you know you found someone converted when they not only illustrate Christ, but they illustrate Christ because they love the person and work of Christ, because the Spirit of Christ has so instilled the joy of Christ into their souls, such that even in their darkest hours, they can still say to live as Christ and die as gain. Or even amidst our doubt and difficulty or depression, Christians can say, as Paul does to the church in Thessalonica, sorry, to the church in Corinth, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, I don't understand this, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. For why? why? Why can we do this? Because in this light momentary affliction, it is preparing. It's doing something. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, not to this world as such, but to the things that are unseen. Then he says, therefore, as we look to Christ and his kingdom, we do not lose heart, though we are afflicted here. That's the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is the joy of Christ. It is found in the heart of every Christian. We're on the brightest day and the darkest night. We may laugh or we may weep, but because we await our Savior from heaven, we know joy is coming in the morning. And our Savior has promised us that nobody can take our joy from us. We may not always be happy, but the truly converted can ever be joyful because heaven has not only broken into our actions, heaven has begun to break into our hearts to reorient where joy is, what joy is and where it's to be found. And that leads to the third evidence of the truly converted. They imitate Christ, they have the joy of Christ, and thirdly, the truly converted sound forth the gospel. 
That's the proclamation of Christ. Right? So the truly converted, they imitate Christ, they have the joy of Christ, and then they proclaim Christ. Look there in verse 8, where Paul says, The Thessalonians' faith, hope, and love for Christ has so sounded forth. The word there is where we get our word echo. It's echoed out. It's sounded forth. It's abounded amidst affliction. Notice how he's underlining that. That it sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia, and it has gone forth. He says everywhere. It's gone everywhere. Such that when Paul shows up to tell people, let me tell you, friend, in XYZ City, uh, well, here I am in Possum Trot, Kentucky. Let me tell you about the gospel. And come, yeah, 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 we know about this gospel. We heard about these folks back in Thessalonica that repent and believed on Jesus, been born again. Paul's like, yeah, you heard about that. Yes. That's what Christians are like. They're telling others about it so that it travels around the world. Peter, after his conversion, the Spirit depends upon him. He had the joy of Christ before. Remember, he was all scared and everything. I don't know who you're talking about. And then a few days later, he's like, I'm ready to die. How did that happen? Spirit comes in, and he goes out and preaches the gospel. We learn in Acts chapter 4, law comes in, new law here. Constitution says now you can't do evangelism. And Peter says back to him, do what you need to do, bro. i got to preach the gospel. That's the truly converted. We can't help. We're like Christians ought to be like children. Right When you get that, when you get the, the G.I. Joe F-14 fighter wing jet, and you're like, y'all, calling up your butt. We didn't have phones. Well, we did. Hey, Bobby, listen, is Bobby there? Y'all, kids, y'all understand that another day. But uh, we had to call and ask for that. We didn't have cell phones. Like, hey, I got an F-14. Like, do this. Really? Let's go talk about it. Let's go play with it. Yeah, that's what Christians are like. Like, we got this good news. I got to tell you about this, man. I can't help but tell you about this. We who are in Christ cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Paul says that the love of Christ constrains us such that we want everyone to have it, even our enemies, so that they might be saved because we want Jesus to get more glory. The truly converted repent of idolatry by turning away from dead idols to the living God in faith where they await a Savior to return from heaven so as to be with him and have heaven on earth We evidence that faith through the imitating of Christ and his people out in front of one another. We have the joy of Christ and his promises, and we share those promises with the world in need. This is what it means to be converted. But there's one last question before we close. What does this evidence of conversion mean for the beloved chosen ones? What does it mean? We've already said that we can know it. We've documented what that looks like. What does it all mean for the converted? What does this knowledge do for us as a church, individual and collectively? What does it do for us? God is very clear. I mean, he gave us a really big book, right? And even in this passage, he's given us all the evidence of what salvation is and, by implication, isn't. But why? What does it do for us to have this knowledge, to see, all right, that's what a Christian is. That's what they ought to be doing. Church membership ought to be sort of doing that. Is Is that it? No, there's more. Look down there in verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 and 4. Here's the answer to that question. What this knowledge does, guys, is it gives those of us that are in Christ, it gives us assurance. It gives us assurance so that in our afflictions, we might be compelled to stay the course till we get home. 
Listen to what Paul says. Chapter 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. It's hard. We sent him over there. We knew it was hard. We sent this dude to you. We knew it was hard. So that you won't, we sent him to you so that you won't be moved by these afflictions. Look at it. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Paul's saying, we told you it was going to be like this from the beginning. It's not this ridiculous, sinful, satanic, health, wealth, prosperity gospel. If you just believe Jesus, you're going to get a Ferrari. That's from the pits of hell. Paul says right there, as clear as day, you trust in Jesus. We told you it's cross-shaped. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul's going, listen, we told, we know it's hard. We sent Timothy to you to encourage him because we knew it was going to be hard. And it's like, listen, we t- remember we told you it was going to be hard. So the reason why Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians 1 down through chapter, actually into chapter 2, verse 16, maybe even the reason for this letter in its entirety is to say, listen, you're doing it. You're in Christ. You're real. We told you it was going to be like this, but you're the real thing. You have assurance. Keep going. We'll get home. He's saying to us, mired in afflictions of various kinds, maybe different than the afflictions of the Thessalonians. Verse 4, look back at verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Here's their, their first pastors. Here's their missionary team. Paul is saying, listen, we're Christ-ordained. This is a Christ-ordained apostle. We know, brothers, from there, from, from God's sort of messengers, ambassadors. He's saying, we know, brothers and sisters, mired in these afflictions. We know. Can you imagine what this would do for them? We know you're loved by God. We know you're chosen. We know it. Because you have evidenced the fruit of your conversion such that its news is traveling all over the world. You're chosen. You're loved by God. You're the real thing. You're in the family. Do you see what this does for a beleaguered and beat down church? Flushed with trials and temptations, yet still trusting in Christ through it? The assurance we receive from believing and evidencing the one true gospel means that we're chosen that we're truly loved by God. We're known, we're loved, we're seen, we're heard. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it. We are being kept and we will be delivered from the wrath to come, whereas those that frustrate us won't. He wants them to know they're going to get justice. These folks doing bad to you, they're going to get taken care of up in the day day ahead. You're going to be safe. Stay the line, church family. Stay the line. You are the real thing. You're loved by God. You're chosen. Your faith, your hope, your love. It is not lost on the Lord. And it is not lost even on the church from around the world. You keep going. Don't give up. God will keep you. You keep trusting in Him and you still keep evidencing Him. What would it do for us, Restoration Church, if we could audibly hear from the lips of Christ himself. What would it do for us? If we heard from the lips of Christ, we heard from him say to us, to you, son, daughter, Restoration Church, well done. I know it's hard. Remember, I told you it was going to be hard. I love you. You're chosen. You're doing it. 
You're acting like me. Yeah, you're a bunch of messy people, but you're doing it. I love you. I'm going to be I'm going to be back soon enough. And all your enemies are going to be taken care of. And we'll be together forever. Keep going. What if we heard that audibly from Jesus? What would it do for us? That's what this is. God's word to our ears. Wouldn't it cause us to resound forth, to resolve to imitate Christ even more with those words? Wouldn't it cause us to give more of ourselves to our neighbors and the nations? Again, that's what this is. This letter is the word of Christ to our ears. Insofar as we, though imperfectly, preach and portray this true gospel, we evidence ourselves amidst a world of affliction. We evidence ourselves as a chosen, beloved by the Lord. And this should cause us to then stay the line of gospel ministry. When kids are driving us nuts and we're exhausted, to when people threaten to fire us, to whatever else. One example of this is from a soldier in the American Civil War. Writing after the war, he looked back at his experiences through the war, which is awful, right? 650,000 casualties, terrible. He looked back and he said this. He said, quote, If the American volunteers accomplished prodigies of patience and devotion, it is because we fought with the knowledge of the cause. In the midst of the messiest business, one could hear the squeaking voice of the newsboy over the sound of the cannon, crying, New York Tribune, New York Times. And the soldier, he said, would pay up to 10 cents for the newspaper. And after reading it, there would be a redoubling of his zeal and drive to fight. Unquote. Guys, we got something better than the New York Tribune. We have something better than the New York Times. We soldiers of Christ hear the words of our Savior saying, I see you, your labors of love for me. I see where you are praying for the salvation of your family members amidst their mockings. I see where you're sacrificially giving to the work of the church. I see where you are waking up early and staying up late to help other people read the Bible. I see where your kids, when you get your kids dressed in the morning, it's tiresome. Ah, oh, Sunday morning, not so restful. And you get them up because you know you need the word and they need the word. He sees that. Where you continue, he sees where you continue to show grace and forgiveness to that spouse or that coworker that don't deserve forgiveness. But because you've been treated that way, he sees that. You do it. He sees where you serve the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. You serve Christ. He knows. He sees. He's pleased. And he says to us, this activity evidences, insofar as you're doing it for my glory, Jesus says, this evidences your conversion. It evidences that you're chosen. It evidences that you're loved. And you have been and will be delivered from the wrath of God. And those dudes that are causing you all the problems, they won't be. They're going to get it. I'm going to take care of You don't take care of that. I'll take care of that. And soon enough, heaven will be here. Yes, church, we can know if we have been saved. We can know if we're beloved and chosen. And with that knowledge... We can, in the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to love the gospel, preach the gospel, and illustrate the gospel amidst afflictions of various kinds so that our beloved Christ would get all the glory. But if you have not been converted, I'm going to finish here. If maybe over the course of this study, when we've walked through these things as to what it means to be converted, maybe some of you, there's a few James Melbournes in the room, 
and you're going, okay, I'm not converted. I've been, I've been unlike this stuff that you've been saying. Maybe, maybe that's some of you. There's good news for you, friend. Today is the day of salvation. Some people sometimes ask me, Nathan, if God chooses before the foundation of the world, how do we know? Well, I've already answered that question in 50 minutes, but I'll give it to you in short order. How is it you know? Well, here's what I know. Charles Spurgeon said, the more people I preach the gospel to, I found out that there seems to be more people chosen. And the people that I preach the gospel to and are chosen, if you this morning are evidencing the joy of Christ, the desire to imitate him, the desire to preach him, the desire to then look at the idols you've been doing and say, what I've done is wrong. I've been serving the wrong God. I've been serving myself and these other idols. And I want to serve him. If that's you, you're chosen. And it's the work of the church to help you see that. So come and talk to somebody. Don't leave here this morning without talking to somebody so we can help you follow Jesus. And we'll do it together. But members of Restoration Church, I leave you with the words of your Savior. I'm going to read it to you. Members of this church, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 to you, to us. I want you to hear this not just to the church of Thessalonica. I want you to hear it to you. This is Paul speaking. I think he would say of this church, imperfectly though true, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen us, chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so now, Restoration Church, amidst all of your afflictions, sound forth that gospel to Maryland, Virginia, all the way to Iraq, and wait for him to come back amidst those afflictions with the knowledge of assurance of your salvation, beloved. We'll be home with him soon enough and God will deal with all of the injustices in the world and we will rest with him forever. You're loved. You're chosen. Now rest and sound forth that gospel. God, we thank you for your word because we have so many messages in our ears. So many lies that we believe. And we thank you that you're not a God that's silent, that you're not manipulative, that you're not stingy. You created us in the image of God to have capacity to know you and love you and trust you. And though we are rebels, you sent your son to redeem us, to love us, to bring us home. And we thank you, God, that we can have knowledge of this so that by it we might be assured to stay the line till you come back. Thank you, God. Help us. In Christ's name.